This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets and Fauna. On this episode, I chat with Natter Dabbit about building apps on the decentralized web. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 106. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I am joined again by Natter Dabbit. Hey, Natter, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me. So you are now a developer relations engineer at Edge and Node. So I would love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I think a lot of people probably know, know you already, but a little bit about your background and then what Edge and Node is. Yeah, totally. So my name is Natter Dabbit, like you mentioned, and I've been a developer for about, I guess, nine or 10 years now. And um, a lot of people might know me from my work with AWS, where I worked with the Amplify team, uh, with the front end web and mobile team doing a lot of, you know, full stack stuff there as well as serverless. And um, I've been working as a developer relations person, developer advocate, actually uh, leading the front end web and mobile team at AWS for a little over three years I was there and I was kind of a manager for the last year and I became really, really interested in serverless while I was there and um, it kind of led to me writing a book, which is full stack serverless. It also just led me down the rabbit hole of managed services and philosophy and all this stuff. And um, it's been really, really cool to kind of, you know, learn about everything in, in the space. And um, Edge and Node is kind of like my next step, I would say, in doing work in what I kind of consider maybe a serverless area, but it's kind of an area that a lot of people might not associate with with the traditional, you know, I would say definition of serverless or the, the types of companies they often um, associate with serverless. But Edge and Node is a company that was spun off from a team that created a decentralized uh, API protocol which is called the Graph Protocol. And the Graph Protocol uh, started being built in 2017. It was officially launched um, in a decentralized way at the end of 2020. And now we are currently finalizing kind of like that migration from a hosted service to a decentralized service actually this month. So a lot of really uh, exciting things going on, and we'll talk a lot about that and kind of um, you know what what all that means. But at Edge and Node itself, like we do support the Graph protocol, that's part of what we do. But we also build out decentralized applications ourselves. So we have a couple of applications that we're building as engineers. We're also um, doing a lot of work within the Web three ecosystem, which is kind of like known as like the decentralized web ecosystem, by investing in different people and companies and supporting different things and uh, spreading awareness around some of the things that are going on here. Because, you know, it kind of does have a lot to do with maybe the work that people are doing in the Web two space, which would be like the traditional web space, the space that kind of I was in before. Right. Right. So here I am. I, I follow you on Twitter. Um, love the videos that you do on on your YouTube channel. And you're like a like like a a shining example of what a really good developer relations sort of dev advocate 
is. I mean, you just produce so much content, things like that, and you're doing all this stuff on serverless, and I'm loving it. And then all of a sudden, I see you post this thing saying, hey, I'm leaving AWS Amplify, um, and you mentioned something about blockchain, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What, what, is, what is this that, that Natter's now doing? So uh, explain to me this, or maybe explain to me and hopefully the audio, or in the audience as well, um, but what what does the, the blockchain have to do with this decentralized um, sort of decentralized applications or decentralized, um, I guess, Web3. Yeah, so I mean, Web3 as as defined kind of like by definition, you know, what you might see if you kind of do some research would be kind of what a lot of people are talking about as like the next evolution of, of the web as we know it. So like the web, uh, web a lot of, in, in a lot of these articles and stuff that people are kind of like trying to kind of, you know, formalize ideas and stuff. The original web was kind of like the read-only web where we were not creators. The only creators were maybe the the developers themselves. So, yeah. like, early on, I might have, like, gone and read a website and, you know, been able to kind of, you know, only interact with the website by reading information. Uh, the current version that we're currently experiencing might be considered as Web 2, where everyone's a creator. So, all of the interfaces, all of the applications that we interact with are built specifically for input. So I can actually create a comment, I can upload a video, I can share stuff, and I can write to the web, and I can read. And then, um, like, the next evolution a lot of people are categorizing, yes, yeah, is, is Web3, and it's it's kind of like, you know, taking a lot of the great things that we have today and, and maybe improving upon those. So a lot of people, and everyone kind of, this is a, just a really... Um, a very old discussion around some of the trade-offs that we currently make in today's web around our data, around advertising, around the way a lot of business models are created for monetization. And um, essentially, they all come down to the, you know, manipulation of user data and different tricks and ways to kind of steal people's data and use that uh, essentially to create targeted advertising. Um, not only is this kind of lead to a lot of times a negative experience. I mean, I just saw a tweet yesterday that resonated a lot with me that said YouTube is no longer a video platform. It's now an ad platform with mm-hmm. videos in between. And that's the way I feel about YouTube. I mean, my kids totally. uh, have kids that use YouTube and it's interesting to watch them because they're like, they know exactly what to do when the ads come up and like, you know, exactly how to time it because they're used to like ads are just part of their experience. That's just like, you know, what, what they're used to. And it's not just YouTube, it's, you know, every site that's out there that's a social site, Instagram, you know, LinkedIn. And I think that um, that's not the original vision that people had, right, for the web. I don't think, like, this was part of it. And um, there have been a lot of people proposing solutions, but the the core fundamental problem is how these applications are engineered, but also how the applications are like paid for like how do these companies pay right. for developers to build so it's a really complex problem that you know the simplest solution is just sell ads or maybe create something like a developer platform where you're charging you know uh, weekly or monthly or, or yearly or something like that so um I, I would say like a lot of the ideas around web3 are aiming to solve solve this exact problem and um in order to do that you have to kind of rethink how we build applications. You have to rethink how we store data. You have to rethink about how we um, think about identity as well, because, you know, um, again, how do you build an application that deals with user data without making it public in some way, right? So like, how do we deal with that? And a lot of those problems are the things that people are thinking about and building 
ways to address those in, in this kind of decentralized you know, Web3 world. And it became really fascinating to me when I started kind of looking into it, you know, because I'm very passionate about what I'm doing. Like, I really, I really enjoy being a developer and, and going out and helping other people. But I always felt like there was like something like missing because like, you know, I'm sitting here I'm, and I love AWS still. And in fact, I would 100% go back and work there um, or, or any of these big companies, right? Because like there, you can't really look at a company as like, a, in my opinion, like a black or white, good or bad thing. There's companies right. that are doing good things and bad things at the same time. Like for instance, at AWS, I would... Uh, meet a developer, you know, teach them something at a workshop. A year later, they would contact me and be like, hey, I got my first job or I created a business or I landed my first client. So like you're actually helping improve people's lives. At the same time, you're reading these articles about Amazon, like in the news with like some of the negative stuff going on. So the way that I look at it is, you know, like um, I can't sit there and say any company is good or bad, but I felt like a lot of the applications that people were building were, you know, also at the end goal, like when you hear some of these VC discussions or people like raising money, like a lot of the the end goal for some of the people I was working with were just selling advertising. And I'm like, is this really like what we're here to do? It's just like, <laughs> right. you know, right. it kind of like doesn't feel fulfilling anymore when you start seeing that over and over and over. So I think the really thing that fascinated me was like that um, people are actually building applications that are monetized in a different way. And, um, and, and then I started diving into the infrastructure that enabled this and realized that there was a lot of similarities between serverless and, um, how developers would, would deploy and build applications in this way. And it kind of, uh, was like the entry point to my rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I, I'm, you know, I, I talked to you about this, um, and I've been reading some of the stuff that you've been putting out and, and trying to educate myself on some of this. And it it seems very much so like that show Silicon Valley on HBO, right? Like this decentralized web and things like that. But there's kind of, and, and totally correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think, I feel like there's two sides of this. You've got one side that is sort of the blockchain that I think some people are familiar with in, in, in the, um, I guess, in the context of cryptocurrency, right? That, you know, this is a, a, a very popular use of, of the blockchain um, because you have that redundant and you have that, you know, the agreement amongst multiple places, it's decentralized. Um, and so that so you have that sort of security there around that. Um, but there's other uses for the blockchain as well, um, especially things like banking and real estate and some of those other use cases that I'd like to talk about. And then there's like an up then like another side of it that is sort of this decentralized piece is the decentralized piece of it, like building apps is that like, how is that related to the blockchain? Or are those two separate things? Yeah, absolutely. And um you know, I'm a big fan of Silicon Valley. I, I, working in tech, it's almost like every single episode resonates with you right. if, you've, <laughs> if you've been in here long enough because you've been in one of those situations. Um, so, yeah, the blockchain is part of the discussion. Crypto is part of the discussion. But the and, and those things never really interested me, to be honest. Like the, I was a speculator in crypto from 2015 until now. And I've, uh, you know, it's been fun. But I never really looked at crypto in any other way other than that. Um, blockchain kind of had a really negative, I would say, like um, association in my mind for a long mm-hmm. time. I just never really uh, saw saw any good things that were people were doing with it. I just didn't, you know, do any research. Maybe didn't understand what was going on. Um, 
so like when I started diving into uh, originally what really kind of got me interested is the graph protocol, which is one of the things that we work on at Edge and Node. And I started actually understanding like, why does this thing exist? You know, like, mm -hmm. why is it there? And um, that led me to understanding, you know, why it was there and the fact that um, like 90% of, of dApps, decentralized apps in the Ethereum ecosystem are using it and, you know, billions of queries, companies uh, with billions of dollars in transactions are all using this stuff. And I'm like, okay, this whole like world exists, but why does it exist? Um, so like, I guess to, to give you an example, I guess we can talk about the graph protocol and, um, and there are a lot of other web, I would say like web three or decentralized infrastructure protocols right. that are out there that are similar, but they all kind of are, are doing similar things in the sense of how they're actually built and how they're, you know, allow participation and stuff like that. Um, when you think of like something like AWS, you know, you think of um, AWS has all these different services. So I want to build an app. I need storage. I need um, some type of, you know, um, authentication layer, maybe with mm -hmm. Cognito. And then maybe I need some place to execute some some business logic. So maybe I'll spin up some serverless functions or, or create an EC2 instance, whatever. So you have all these building blocks. Um, essentially, kind of what a lot of these decentralized protocols like the graph are doing are building out the same types of web infrastructure, but doing so in a decentralized way. So um, why does that even like matter? Why is that important? Well, for instance, when um, you live, let's say, for example, in another country, um, like, I don't know, in South America or in, in, you know, outside the United States or even in the United States in the future, you never know. Let's say that you have some application and um, you've you've said something rude about maybe like the, the, the president or something like that. Um, let's say that for whatever reason, somebody hacks, you know, um, the the. I don't know the server that you're 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 dealing with or whatever. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, like there is a single point of failure, right? So like uh, you have your data that's controlled by the um, cloud provider, or the government can come in and they can kind of like you know have control over that. Um, the idea around some of uh, pretty much all of the decentralized protocols is that they are built and, and distributed in a way that not there is no single point of failure, but there's also no, also no single point of control. Um, and that's that's kind of important when you're living in areas uh, uh, like that. I have to even you know worry about stuff like that. So maybe right. we don't have to worry about that as much here, but um, you know in other countries uh, they might. So um, you know building something like you know uh, a server is like not a big deal, right? Like with a with AWS, but how would you build a server and make it available for um, anyone in the world to basically you know deploy? and do so in a decentralized way. I think that's the problem that a lot of these protocols are trying to solve. And um, for the graph in particular, um, if you want to build an application using uh, data that's stored on a blockchain, so like um, there's a, few, a, a lot of applications out there that are kind of basically you know using the blockchain for mainly like right now it's for financial transactional reasons because a lot mm -hmm. of the transactions actually cost a lot of money. So, for instance, like Uniswap is one of these applications. Um, if you want to basically, you know, query data from a blockchain, it's not as easy as querying data from like a traditional server or database. Right. Like for us, we're used to using something like DynamoDB or, or, or some type of SQL database that's very optimized for queries. 
But um, on, on the blockchain, you're basically having like um, these blocks that kind of add up over time. You know, you create a transaction, you save it, and then someone comes behind them and they saves another. They save another transaction. And over time, you kind of like build up this data that's aggregated over time. But let's say you want to kind of hit that database with um, the quote unquote database with like a query, and you want to mm -hmm. retrieve like data over time, or you want to have some type of filtering mechanism. You can't do that. So you can't just query blockchains like the way you can from a regular database. Um, similar to like how, um, you know, a database basically indexes data and like stores it and makes it, you know, efficient for retrieval. The graph protocol basically does that, but for blockchain data. So anyone that wants to build an application, one of these decentralized apps on top of blockchain data has a couple of options. They can either build their own indexing server and, you know, deploy it to some somewhere like AWS. And uh, that kind of like, takes away the whole idea of decentralization because then you have a single point of failure again. Um, you can query data directly from the blockchain from your client application, which takes a very long time. Um, so both of those are kind of like not, you know, I would say the most optimal uh, right. ways to build. But also like if you're building your own indexing server, every time you want to come up with a new idea also, you have to think about the resources and, and time that go into it. So like basically I want to kind of like, you know, come up with a new idea and test it out. I have to basically build uh, a server, index all this data, create APIs around it. You know, it's kind of like time intensive. Um, what the graph protocol allows you to do is um, as a developer, you can basically define a subgraph using YAML, similar to something like uh, CloudFormation or mm -hmm. a very condensed version of that, maybe more like serverless framework where you're kind of like right. defining I want to query data from this data source and I want to save like these entities and you deploy that to the network and that subgraph will basically then go and look into that blockchain and will look for all of the transactions that have happened and it'll go ahead and save those and make those available for public uh, retrieval. And also, again, one of the things that you might think of is like all of this data is public. So all of the data that's like on the blockchain is public. Right. Right. So, all right. So let me see if I can, uh, let me see if I can repeat what you said and, and you tell me if I'm right about this. Cause this was one of those things where blockchain, you're right. It had this, to me, it had a negative connotation. Like why would you use the black, the blockchain unless you were building your own cryptocurrency, right? Like that just seemed like that's what it was for. So then when, when AWS comes out with QLDB or they announced that or whatever it was, I'm sort of like, okay, so this is interesting, but like, why would you use it again, unless you're building your own, you know, your own uh, cryptocurrency or something, because that's the only thing I could think of you would use the blockchain for. But as you said, so with these blockchains now, you have like highly sensitive transactions, not that can be public, but like a real estate transaction, for example, is something really interesting where like, you know, we still live in a world where if Bank of America or, you know, um, uh, I don't know, one of these other giant banks, uh, JP uh, Morgan Chase or something like that gets um, hacked. I mean, they could wipe out financial data, right? And I know that's backed up in multiple regions and so forth. But like, this is the kind of thing where if you're if you're doing some sort of transaction that you want to make sure that transaction lives forever and isn't manipulated, then the blockchain is a, is a good place to do that. But like you said, it's expensive right there. But it's even harder to read off the blockchain because it's it's like it's that ledger, right? It's that just information coming right. in, coming in. So like event storming or like if you were doing event sourcing or something like that, it's that idea. So the idea with these indexers are these separate basically separate apps that run that and again I, I i'm assuming that these protocols there's software and things that are you don't have to build this yourself essentially you can just deploy these things right but this will read off of the blockchain 
and do that aggregation for you and then make that. So basically, it sort of um, caches the blockchain, right, and makes that available to you. And that you could deploy that to multiple indexers if you wanted to, right? And then you would have multiple, uh, you had access to that data across multiple providers. Right. No, yeah, no single point of failure. It's, that's exactly right. You basically deploy a, um, a very like, concise configuration file that kind of defines how you want your data stored and, and made available. Yeah, and then it goes and it just starts at the very beginning and it queries all of those blocks or reads all those blocks, saves the data in a database, and then it keeps up with additional new updates. So if someone writes a new transaction after that, it also saves that and makes it available for, for, mm. for efficient uh, retrieval. So this is just for blockchain data. You know, this is this is kind of like the data layer for, but it's not just a blockchain data. Like in the future, um, like you can also query from IPFS, which is a file storage layer similar to S3. You can um, query from, you know, other chains other than Ethereum, which is kind of like the main chain. But in the future, um, really what we're hoping to have is a complete API on top of all public data. So anybody that wants to, uh, have some data set available can basically deploy a subgraph and index it, and then anyone can can then essentially query for it. So it's kind of like when you think of public data, we're we're not really used to thinking of data in this way. Um, like, and also I think a good thing to talk about in, the, in 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 a moment is kind of like the types of apps that you can build because mm. you wouldn't want to store like private messages on a blockchain or something like that, right? So, like, you know, the types of apps that people are building right now, at least, are kind of not 100% like in line with everything. Like, you can't do everything, I would say, right now in Web3 that you can do in like Web2. There are only certain types of applications. But those applications that are successful seem to be like wildly successful and, mm. you know, have a lot of people interested in them and, and using them. But, uh, but yeah, that's the general idea is like you have. Um, this way to basically deploy APIs and the the technology that we used to query is GraphQL. So that was one of the reasons that I became kind of interested as well. And um, you know, right now the main the main data sources are blockchains and like Ethereum. But in the future, you know, we would like to make that available to other data sources as well. All right. Hi everyone. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. If you're an IT professional or a developer like me, you know how important it is to constantly be learning new skills to keep up with the latest trends. Now, sometimes a blog post or a YouTube tutorial can get you started, but if you really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. With CBT Nuggets, I have access to more than 400 courses and 4,000 hours of professional training. And with a 100% in-house training team, they add 40 hours of new training every week. Their courses feature topics ranging from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. CBT Nuggets also offers virtual labs so that you can practice your new skills as you're learning them. They also have accountability coaching, which lets you talk to a real person to create a custom learning plan to set goals and keep you accountable. Whether you're a developer looking to sharpen your skills or a team looking to level up together, you can try CBT Nuggets for free for seven days thanks to their free trial offer. Just visit cbtnuggets.com slash serverless and sign up to get started. So, so you mentioned earlier too, I mean, because there are apps obviously being built on this that I, that, it, that you said are successful. And the, and the problem though, I think right now, because I remember I, I speculated a little bit with Bitcoin and I bought a whole bunch of Ripple. So I'm still hanging on to it. So Ripple XPR, whatever, like, let's go. Um, anyways, but the, uh, but it was expensive 
to make a transaction, right? So right. reading off of it, uh, you know, reading off of the blockchain itself, I think just connecting generally doesn't cost money. But if you're, and I know there's some cost with indexers and that's sort of how that that works. But in terms of the real cost, it's writing to the blockchain. Um, and I remember moving some Bitcoin at one point, I think it cost me like $30, you know, to make one transaction to move something like that. So I can see if you're writing a, you know, $300,000 real estate transaction or maybe some really large, you know, wire transfer or something that you want to record or, you know, something that makes sense where you could charge a fee of $30 or $40 in order to do that. Um, I can't see you doing that for certainly not for like, um, you know, web web streaming or click, you know, click tracking or something like that. That wouldn't make sense. Um, but even for other, you know, even for smaller things that might be writing more to it, $30 or whatever that would be seems quite expensive. So what's the, you know, what's the hope around that? Yeah, that's a, that's that's that was one of the biggest challenges. And that was one of the reasons that I, um, like when I first I would say maybe even considered this as like a technology back in the day that um, I would be considering as something that would possibly be like usable for like the types of applications I'm used to seeing. It just was like a no brainer, like no. Um, but like, yeah, I think like right now and that's one of the things that attracted me right now to some of the things that are happening is a lot of those solutions are finally coming to fruition for fixing those sorts of things. So there's two, there's two things that are happening right now that kind of solve that problem. Um, one of them is they are uh, merging in a couple of updates to the base layer, which uh, layer one, which would be kind of considered like something like Ethereum or Bitcoin. But Ethereum is kind of the main one that um, a lot of the financial stuff that I see is happening. And basically, um, there are two different, you know, updates that are happening that um, one, I think the main one that will make this um, fee transactional like price go down a little bit is uh, sharding and sharding is basically going to in, uh, increase the number of, I believe, you know, um, nodes that are basically able to process the transactions by, uh, by, by some number. And mm -hmm. basically that will reduce the cost somewhat, but I don't think it's ever going to get it down to kind of like a usable level. Instead, what the solutions seem to be right now, and one of the solutions that seems to actually be working, people are using it in production really recently, like this really just started happening in the last couple of months, is uh, these layer two solutions. So there are a couple of, um, of different layer two solutions that are basically um, layers that run on top of the layer one, which would be something like, like Ethereum, and they treat Ethereum as like kind of like the settlement layer. It's almost like when you interact with the bank, you're and you're running your debit card, you're probably not talking to the bank directly and and, right. and they're doing that. Instead, you have something like Visa who has this this layer 2 on top of the banks that are managing like, you know, thousands of transactions per second, and then they take all of those transactions and they settle settle those um in an underlying, you know, layer. So um there's a couple different layer 2s that seem to be really working uh, right well right now in, in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, one of those is Arbitrum, and then uh, the other is, um, I think, Matic, but I think they have a different name now. But yeah, both of those uh, seem to be working, and they bring like the cost of a transaction down to like a fraction of a, a, a penny. Mm. So you have, instead of paying like 20 or $30 for a transaction, you're now paying, you know, uh, like almost nothing. But now that's still not cheap enough to probably treat a blockchain as a traditional database, a high right. throughput database, but it does open the door for a lot of other types of applications. 
So, um, you know, the applications that you see building on layer one where the, uh, the transactions really are five to, to 20 or $30 are typically higher value transactions. So things like uh, governance, uh, things like financial transactions, you've heard of NFTs and that, that might right. make sense because if someone's going to spend a thousand bucks or a hundred, five hundred bucks, NFTs whatever. Don't make, they might NFTs not, don't make sense to me, but <laughs> yeah, they're not nothing either. Like, uh, the way they're being, you know, I would say like talked about today, especially, but I think in the future, the idea behind an NFT is interesting, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, but like, but still t- to those people, like if you're paying a thousand dollars for, for something right. then that five or 10 or 20 bucks, like might make sense, but it's not going to make sense if I just want to go to like an e-commerce store and like pay $5 for something. Right. So I think that, that these layer twos are starting to unlock those potential opportunities where people can start building these true financial applications that allow these, these transactions to happen at a, at uh, you know, at the, at the same pr- cost or actually a lot cheaper maybe than what you're paying for a credit card transaction. I mean, or even what the, those those vendors, right? Like if you're running a, a store, you're paying percentages to those companies. So like the idea around decentralization comes back to this discussion of re- getting rid of the middleman, right. you know, and, and a lot of times that means getting rid of the inefficiencies. So if you can offload the if you can offload this this business logic to some type of computer, then you've basically, um, you know, abstracted away a lot of inefficiencies. So how many billions of dollars are spent every year by banks flying their, you know, people around the world and and private jets and these, these skyscrapers and stuff. Now, where, like, where does that money come from? Like it's, it's, it comes from the consumer and uh, them basically taking, yeah, (laughs) they're taking, you know, money here and there. Right. So like, that, that's the idea behind technology in general. They're like, whenever, you know, something new and, and, and groundbreaking comes in, it's, it's kind of often unforeseen, but then you look back five years later and you're like, oh, this was like, this is a no brainer. Right. So right. for instance, Inevitable. you know, Blockbuster and Netflix, there's a million of them. I mean, I don't have yeah. to go into that. So I kind of feel like this is what that is for maybe the financial, um, you know, institutions and, and how we think about finance, especially in a global world. And I think this was maybe even accelerated by, by, um, you know, COVID and stuff. I mean, if you want to, if you want to build uh, an application today, imagine limiting yourself to developers in your city. Like, uh, unless you're maybe in like San Francisco or New York where that might still work. If, if I'm here in Mississippi and I want to build an application, I'm not going to just look for developers in a 30 mile radius. That is just insane. And I don't right. use that word like mildly, like it's just <laughs> wild to think about that. You wouldn't do that. Instead, you want to look in your, in your, in your nation, but really you might want to look around the world because you now have things like Slack and Discord and all these asynchronous w- w- ways of doing work. And you might be able to find the best developer in the world for 25% or 50% of what you would typically find locally. And an easy way to pay them might just be to just send them some crypto, right? Um, you don't have to kind of go find out all their banking information and do all the wiring and all this other stuff. You just like open your wallet, you send them the money and that's it. It's done deal. Um, but that's just one that's just one thing to think about. So like right. to me, when I think about building apps in Web 2 versus Web 3, I don't think you're going to see like the Facebook or Instagram use case anytime in the next like year or two. I think the killer app, you know, for right now, it's going to be financial and e-commerce stuff. But I do think in maybe five years, you will you'll, you will see someone crack that uh, crack that application for you know, um, something like a social media app where we're basically building something that we use today, but maybe in a better way. And uh, that will be done, you know, 
using some off-chain storage solution, you're not going to be writing all these transactions again to a blockchain. You're going to have maybe a protocol like Graph that allows you to have a distributed database that is, um, you know, uh, managed by one of these networks that you right. can write to. And this is, I think the, the ideas that we're talking about now are the things that really excite me anyway. <laughs> yeah, so so let's go back to GraphQL for a second, though. So if you were going to build an app on top of this, and again, that's super exciting, getting those transaction fees down, because I do feel like every time you try to move money um, between banks or it's the $3 fee if you go to a foreign ATM and you take money out of an ATM, they charge you money. You know what I mean? It's like everything, everybody wants to take a cut somewhere along. And, and there's probably reasons for it, but also, you know, corporate jets, cost money. So um, that makes sense as well. But um, but in terms of the GraphQL protocol here, so if I wanted to build an application on top of it, and maybe my application doesn't write to the blockchain, it just reads from it, you know, with one of these indexers, because maybe I'm, you know, summing up some financial transactions for something, or I've got an app where you can look things up or whatever, I'm building something. Um, querying using the GraphQL, this makes sense. I have to use one of these indexers that's, you know, aggregating that data for me. Um, but what if I did want to write to the blockchain? Can I use GraphQL um, to do like a mutation and actually write something to the blockchain or do I have to write to it directly? Yeah, that's actually a really, really good question. And that's one of the things that we are currently um, working on um, at the at the graph or with the graph, you know. Um, so right now, if you want to write a transaction, you typically are going to be using one of these JSON RPC um, wallets and uh, using like a, uh, some type of client library that interacts with the wallet and signs the, the transaction with the private key. And then that you know, sends the transaction to the blockchain directly and you're talking to the blockchain and you're just using something like the graph to query. But yeah. I think what would be ideal and what we kind of think would be ideal is if someone could use a single technology, a single language and a single abstraction to do everything, uh, not only with uh, uh, reading and writing, but also with subscriptions for real-time updates. That's kind of like where we think the whole idea for this will ultimately be. And that's what we're working on now. So right now you can only query um, and if you want to write a transaction, you basically are still going to be using something like Ethers JS or Web3 or one of these other, you know, libraries that allows you to kind of sign a transaction using your wallet. But in the future, and, and in fact, like we're already building this right now as, as having a, um, a, a, an end-to-end -end, um, GraphQL library that allows you to write transactions as well as read. And, th and that way, someone just learns a single API and it's a lot easier and it would also make it easier for developers that are coming from like a traditional web background to come in right. because there's a little bit of like learning curve for understanding how to kind of like create one of these uh, signed providers and write the transaction. It's not that much code, but it is a new like way of thinking about things. Well, I think both of us coming from the serverless space, we know that new way of thinking about things certainly can throw a, a wrench in the system when a new developer is, is trying to pick that stuff up. Yeah. Um, all right. So, all right. So that's the blockchain side of things with, you know, the data piece of it. And I think, I think people could wrap their head around that. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I'm still like the decentralized, the other things that we, that you sort of talked about, you mentioned like an S3, something that's sort of an S3 type, um, uh, protocol that you can use. Um, and what are some of the other ones? Uh, I think I'd written some I of compute. them down here, but um, like a, ca a cache was one, Filecoin, LivePeer, like these are all different protocols or services that 
are hosted by the indexers or is this a different thing than the indexers like how how does that work and then how would you use that to you know you know save save data um you know maybe save some sort of blob you know like a blob storage or or something like that yeah let's talk about the token the tokenomics uh, idea around how like crypto fits into this and how it actually powers a protocol like this, and then we'll talk about some of those other protocols. Yeah. So, um, how do people actually build all this stuff and and do it for you know for are they getting paid for it? Is it free? Like, how does that work? And right. how are how does this network actually stay up? You know, because everything costs money, developers' time costs money, and so on and so forth. So, for something uh, for something like the graph, um, basically, like during the building phase of of this protocol, basically there was like white papers and there was blog posts and there was people in discords talking about the ideas that were here. And, and, you know, they basically like had this idea to build this protocol. And this is a very typical like life cycle, I would say. You kind of have someone that comes up with an idea. They, they document some of it. They start building it. And the people that start building it are going to be basically, you know, part of essentially kind of like the founding team you could think of in the sense of they're going to be having equity. Um, because at the end of the day, like to actually launch one of these decentralized protocols, the way that crypto comes into it, there's typically some type of uh, token offering. And the tokens um, need to be for a network like this, some type of utility token to keep the network running in the future. You're not just going to like create some crypto and just like, like, that's it. Like, right. I think that's the whole idea that I thought was going on when in reality, like uh, these tokens are typically used for kind of powering the protocol. But let's say early on you have like, let's say 20 developers and they all build like 5% of the system and um whatever percentage you know that that you want to talk about whatever but like let's say you you have these people helping out and then you actually build the thing and you want to go ahead and launch it and you have something that's working a lot of times what people will do is they'll basically have a a token offering where they'll basically say okay let's go ahead and we're going to mint like x number of tokens and we're going to put these on the market and we're going to also pay uh these people that helped build this system you know x number of tokens and that's going to be kind of their payment and then they can go and um, and sell those or keep those or trade those or whatever they would like to do. Um, so and then you have the tokens that are then put on, uh, you know, on the public market, essentially. And uh, once you've launched the protocol, you have to have uh, tokens to basically continue to power the protocol and fund it. So there are different people that kind of interact with the protocol in different ways. You have the indexers themselves, which are basically software engineers that are deploying you know, um, whatever infrastructure to something like AWS or GCP, mm-hmm. you know, b- these people are still using these cloud providers. They're just, or they're maybe doing it at their house, whatever. All you basically need is a server and you want to basically run this indexer node, which is software that is open source. And you run this node and basically you can go ahead and say, okay, I want to start being an indexer and um, I want to, you know, be one of the different nodes on the network. And to do that, you basically buy some GRT, graph token, and in our case, you stake it, meaning like you are putting this money uh, up to basically affirm that you are an indexer on the protocol and you kind of are you know, going to be accepting subgraph developers to deploy their, their subgraphs to your indexer. And you stake that money. And then when people use the API, they're basically paying money just like they might pay money to somewhere like API Gateway or AppSync. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're paying uh, money for their subgraph. And that money is paid in GRT and it's distributed to the people in the ecosystem. So like me as a developer, 
I'm deploying this, this subgraph. And then if I have like a million people using it, then I make some money. So that's one way to kind of use tokens in the, in the system. Um, another way is basically to, as an outside person looking in, I can say, oh, this indexer is, is really, really good. They know what they're doing. They're a very strong engineer. I'm going to basically um, put some money into their indexer and I'm, and I'm basically backing them as an indexer. And then I will also share in those, uh, the money that comes in from the query fees. Um, and then there are also people that are subgraph developers, which is kind of the stuff that I've been working with mainly, where I can basically come up with a new API. I can be like, oh, it would be cool if I took data from this blockchain and this file system and like uh, merged it together. And I made this really cool like API that people can use to build their apps with. I can deploy that. And basically people can um, signal to this subgraph uh, using tokens. And when people uh, do that, it can kind of like say that they believe that this is a, sub a good subgraph to use. And then when people use that, I can also make money, um, you know, in that in that way. So basically, people are using tokens to um, be part of the system itself, but mm -hmm. also to use that. So if I am an API, I'm sorry, if I'm like a, a front end application like Uniswap, and I want to basically um, use the graph, I can basically say, okay, I'm going to put $1,000 in GRT tokens, and I'm going to be using this API endpoint, which is a subgraph. And then, you know, all of the money that that I have put up as, you know, someone that's using this is going to be kind of like taken as the people start using it. So like, let's say I have a million queries, and like each query is like, you know, one one thousandth of a cent. Then after, you know, those million queries are up, I've spent like $100 or something like that. So kind of similar to how you might pay AWS, you're in, you're now paying like um, you know subgraph developers and indexers, right? Okay, so that makes sense. So then that's that's the payment method of that. So then these other protocols that get built um, on top of it, like the uh, Cash and Filecoin and LivePeer, um, so those so they're all you, operating in a very similar fashion. Okay, all right, and so it's so all like very, you have like uh, some type of node uh, software that's that's run and. Um, People can basically like, you know, run this node on some server somewhere and make it available as part of the network. And then they can use the tokens to kind of participate. So there's Filecoin for file storage. Um, there's also IPFS, which is actually more of like a, um, it's a completely free service, but it's also not something that's kind of as reliable as something like uh, S3 or Filecoin. Um, and then you have, like you mentioned, I believe like Akash, which is a, a way to execute you know, uh, arbitrary code, business logic, and stuff like that. Um, you have a ceramic network, which is something that you can use for authentication. You have live peer, which is uh, something you use for live streaming. So kind of like you have all these ideas, these decentralized services kind of like fitting in these different uh, niches. Right, right. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Fauna. Fauna is a flexible, developer-friendly, transactional database delivered as a secure and scalable cloud API. With Fauna, think data, not database operations, as it provides serverless, multi-region, transactional database instances accessible all through simple API calls. 
It gives you the data safety and reliability you need without the operational pain all too common when managing your own systems. Fauna also offers a unique index document system that supports relations, documents, and graphs for unmatched modeling flexibility. Its query interface features complex joins and custom business logic, just like stored procedures, as well as support for real-time streaming and GraphQL. Its reliable, no-compromise platform features distributed data and a compute engine that is strongly consistent, fast, and highly resilient. You can trust Fauna to protect your data and scale when you need to, with the assurance that it's grounded in academic research and Jepson tested. Also, because Fauna is an API, not a database as a service or a cluster that you have to manage, it's provisioning free, configuration free, and available instantly as a serverless utility. Once plugged in, it delivers limitless capacity and throughput, so your applications never break under unpredictable load. Fauna completely eliminates operational overhead such as sharding, capacity planning, data replication, schedule maintenance, and so much more. If you want to experience database nirvana, visit fauna.com and sign up for free. Okay, so then now you've got a bunch of people. Now, you mentioned this idea of you could say, oh, this is a good indexer. Um, what about bad indexers, right? Like, I mean, That's if you're really basically, <laughs> yeah, so you're relying on people to take data off of a public blockchain, and then you're relying on them to process it correctly and give you back good data. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they could manipulate that data if they wanted to. I don't know why, but let's say they did. Um, like, is there a way to guarantee that you're getting the correct data? Yeah, that's 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 a whole part of kind of like how the system uh, works. There is, um, you know, th there's this whole idea in this whole really really deep rabbit hole of crypto economics and how these protocols are structured to kind of like incentivize and, and also disincentivize. So uh, in in our protocol, basically you have this idea of slashing, and this is kind of like also a fairly uh, known and used thing in the, in in the ecosystem and in the um, in the space. It's this idea of slashing. So basically, you incentivize people to go out and find people that are serving incorrect data. And if that person finds someone that's serving incorrect data, then the person that's serving the incorrect data, data is, uh, is, is quote unquote slashed. And that basically means that they're not only not going to receive the money from the queries that they were serving, but they also might lose the money that they put up uh, to, to, to you know, be a part of the network. So I mentioned you have to actually put up money to deploy uh, an indexer to the network, that money could also be at risk. So you would, you're very, very, very much so financially disincentivized to do that. Right. And there's right. actually, you know, again, incentives in the network for people to go and find those people. So it's all around incentives, game theory, and things like that. Which makes it, which makes a ton of sense. So that's good to know. So, um, so you mentioned you threw out the the number five years from now. You know, somebody might build the killer app or whatever. They'll figure out some of these things. Like, where are we with this, though? Because this sounds really early, right? Like, there's still things that need to be figured out. Like, you know, again, it's public data on the blockchain. So, like, how do you see this evolving? And, like, when when do you think sort of Web3 will be more accessible to the to the masses? So, I mean, today people are actually building uh, really, really interesting applications that are fitting the current, um, you know, technology stack like what are the things that you can build people are already kind of building those mm -hmm. but like yeah when you think about the current state of the web where you have something like you know twitter or, or facebook or instagram where i would say especially maybe something like facebook that's extremely extremely complex 
with a lot of UI interaction, a lot of, uh, of private data, like, you know, messages and stuff. Right. I think to build something like that, yeah, it's going to be a couple of years. Um, and then you might not even see certain types of applications being built. Like, I don't think like there is going to be this thing like where there is no longer these types of applications. There are only these new types. I think it's more of like a new type of application that people are going to be building. And it's not going to be kind of like a winner takes all, just like an all tech, mm. in my opinion. Right. When you're, I wouldn't say all, but in, in many areas of tech where you're kind of like thinking of something as a zero sum game where the, I don't think this is. Um, but I do think that the the interest the the most interesting stuff is around kind of like how web3 essentially kind of enables native payments and how people are going to use these native payments in interesting ways that maybe we haven't thought of yet so one of the ways that you're starting to see uh people doing and a lot of venture capitalists are now investing in a lot of these companies if you look at a lot of the companies coming out of YC and a lot of the new companies that you, that uh these traditional like venture capitalists are investing in are a lot of times crypto companies. So when you think about the financial incentives, the things that we kind of talked about early on, um, let's say you want to kind of have uh, the next version of YouTube and you don't want to have ads, like how would that even work, right? You still need to like enable payments. Right. Well, there's a couple of things that could happen there. Well, first of all, if you're building, um, you know, an application in the way that I've talked about where you basically have um, the, these native payments or these native tokens that can be part of the whole process now, instead of waiting 10 years to do like an IPO for an application that, you know, has been around for, for those 10 years and then paying back all those investors and all of those people that, um, had been basically pulling money out of their pocket to, to take part in. What if like someone that has a really interesting idea and maybe they have a really good track record, they come out with a new application and they're basically saying, okay, if you want to own piece of this, uh, we're going to basically create a token and you can have ownership in it. So you might see people doing like these ICOs, uh, initial coin offerings or, or whatever, where basically they're offering portions of the company to anyone that wants to, to own it. And then incentivizing people uh, to basically use those to govern how the application is built in the future. So let's say I own um, like 1% of, of this company and um, a proposal is put up to kind of do something new, I can basically say, I can use that portion of like my ownership to vote on things. And then people that are speculating can say, oh, this company is doing interesting things. I'm going to buy into it, therefore driving the price up or down um, in kind of like the same way that you kind of see the traditional stock market there, but mm -hmm. without all of the regulation mm -hmm. and friction that kind of comes with that. So I think that's interesting. And you're already mm -hmm. seeing, you know, companies doing that. Like right. you're not seeing like the majority of companies doing that or anything like that, but you are starting to see those types of things happening. And that kind of brings around the discussion of like regulations, like is, right. can you just like do something thing. like that in the United States? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not. Does that mean people are going to start building these companies like elsewhere? That's, that's an interesting discussion as well. But, um, but you know, right now, if you want to build an application this way, you need to have some type of, um, you know, utility that these tokens are there for. You can't just do them purely on speculation, right. um, at least, you know, right now. But I, but I think it's going to be interesting for sure to watch. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think too that, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking that if you're a bank, right, and you maybe have a bunch of, you know, private transactions that you want to keep private, because again, I don't even know how, I don't know how we get to private transactions on the blockchain. Um, but like, but I could see you wanting to have some application or some transactions that were public blockchain and some that were, you know, private and maybe like a hybrid approach would make sense for, um, for some companies. 
Yeah, I think the idea that we haven't really talked about at all is identity and how identity mm, right. works compared to how we're used to identity. So the way that we're used to identity working is we basically go to a new website and we're like, oh, this looks awesome. Let me try it out. And they're like, oh, wait, we need your your name, your email address, your phone number, and possibly your credit card and all this right. other stuff. And we do that over and over and over. And over time, we've now given our personal information to like 500 people. And and then you start getting these emails. Oh, your data has been breached like here. Like every week you get one of these emails. Like right. if you're someone like me, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like signing up for too much stuff. Maybe not every week, but uh, maybe every month or two. But um, but yeah, you're giving out your personal data. So like, but we're used to identity as being like tied to our own physical name and address and, and things like that. But what if identity was something that was more abstract? And I think that that's kind of the way that you typically see identity managed in uh, Web3. So when you're dealing with um, authentication mechanisms, one of the most interesting things that I think that is part of this whole discussion is this idea of, of, of a, a single sign-on mechanism that mm-hmm. you own your identity and you can transfer it across all the applications and, and no one else is in control of it. So when you use something like an Ethereum wallet, like MetaMask, for example, it's, just a, 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 it's kind of an extension you can just download and put uh, you know, crypto in and basically pay make payments on the web with. Um, when you create a wallet, you're given a wallet address. And the wallet address is basically uh, created using um, public key uh, cryptography, where you basically you start with this private key, your, um, your public key is derived from the private key, and then your address is derived from the public key. And when you send a transaction, you basically sign the transaction with your private key, and you send your public key along with the transaction, and the person that receives that can decode the transaction with the public key to verify that that's the who signed the transaction. So using this uh, public key pr- cryptography that only you can basically sign with your own address and your own password, um, it's all stored you know, on the blockchain or in some decentralized manner. Um, actually, in this case, uh, you know, it's stored uh, on the blockchain. Um, or it kind of depends on how you use it really, I guess. But anyway, like the whole idea here is that you completely own your identity. So if you never decide to associate that identity with your name and your phone number, then who knows who's sending these transactions and who knows what's going on? Because why would you need to associate your own name and phone number with all of these types of things in, right. in, in these situations where you're like making payments and stuff like that, right? So like, what is the idea of a user profile anyway? And why do you actually need it? Well, you might need it on certain applications. Like you might need it or want it on a social network or maybe not, right? You might come up with a pseudonym. But um, because, you know, maybe you don't want to associate, you know, yourself with with whatever, but you might want to in other cases, but that's completely up to you. And you can have multiple wallet addresses. So you might have a public wallet address that you associate your name with that you're using on social media. You might have a private wallet address um, that you're kind of never associating with your name that you're using for tra- financial transactions. It's completely up to you, but no one can change that information. Um, one of the One of the applications that I recently built was uh, called Decentralized Identity. And um, I kind of built it and, and released it a few days ago. And it's kind of an implementation of this. And it's using some some of these Web3 technologies. Uh, one of them is IDX. One of them is Ceramic, which is a, a, a decentralized protocol similar to the graph, but for identity. And then it's using something called DIDs, which are decentralized identifiers, which are kind of like a way to have a completely unique ID based off of you know um, your address. And then you own the control over that. So you can basically go in and make updates to that profile. And then 
any application across the web that you choose to um, to use can then access that information. So you're only dealing with it stored in one place. You have full control over it. At any mm -hmm. time, you can go in and delete that. Um, you can go in and, and change it. No one has control over it except for you. And and that's kind of the idea of identity is is a mind bending thing in this space because I think we're so right. used to just handing everybody our our real names and our real phone numbers and like all of our, our personal information and just like having our fingers crossed that uh, we're just not used to anything else. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I, it's all super interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about would it be legal in the United States? Like I'm thinking of all these recent ransomware attacks and I think they were able to trace back some Bitcoin transaction. They were actually able to trace it back to the, uh, the individual group that, that accepted the payment. But like, that's the, it, it, it opens up a whole bunch of, you know, a whole can of worms. Like I love this idea yeah, yeah. of being anonymous and not being, you know, not being tracked. But then it's also like, what could bad actors do with anonymous trans financial transactions and things like that? Well, um, cash so has is, been I, an it, anonymous transactional layer for a long time. You know, uh, cash right, brought right. in, like you can't really do a lot of illegal stuff these days without cash. So should we get rid of cash? I mean, there, I think with any technology, no, but I mean, just like, so there's a there's a limit though, right? Like you can't withdraw more than ten thousand dollars worth of cash without like the FBI being flagged, and you can't deposit well, you more. Can't, you know what I mean? You like, can't take a uh, million dollars worth of Bitcoin that you've uh, gotten from ransomware and turn it into cash either. That's also true, right? You know, because like right. even if you because it's all tracked on the blockchain, that's probably how they caught those people, right? They they yeah. they somehow had their personal information tied to a, a transaction that, because if you follow these transactions long enough, you're going to find some right. like origination point. So no, I agree though. I mean, yeah, there's definitely trade-offs with everything. I don't, I don't think I'm ever the type to kind of like argue that um, there's good things and there's bad things. Um, so yeah, I think you kind of have to look at the whole, the whole picture and decide for yourself, like what you think. And I'm, I'm the type that's like, let's lay out all of the, the ideas and like, let the market decide, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So all this stuff is fascinating. Um, it is way too much more for me to learn at this point. I think my brain is, is filled at this point. But um, so anything else about Edge and Node? Any cool things you're working on there? Or anything you want people to know? So we're working on um, a couple of different projects. Um, you know, I can't, I can't really talk about um, some of them because they're not released yet. But we are working on a new version of something called Everest. And Everest is already out. If you want to check it out, it's, it's at everest.link. And it's basically a repository of a bunch of different applications that have already been built in the Web3 ecosystem. Um, and it also ties in a lot of the stuff that we talked about, like identity and uh, stuff like that. So you can basically sign in with your Ethereum wallet. You can basically, you know, interact with different applications and stuff. But you can also just see the types of stuff people are building, and it's categorized into games, financial apps. So, like, like if you're if you if you've listened to this and you're like, this sounds cool, but are people actually building stuff? This is a place to see hundreds of apps that people have already built and that are kind of like out there and successful. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, Natter, this was awesome. Um, thank you so much for sharing this with me. I know I learned a ton. I hope the listeners learned a ton. Um, if people want to learn more about this or just follow you and uh, and keep up with what you're doing, uh, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I would say check out uh, Twitter. You know, uh, we're on Twitter at, at Dabit3 for me at Edge and Node for Edge and Node, and of course uh, Graph Protocol for Graph Protocol. Okay. And then edgenode.com um, uh, is there. Your YouTube channel is just youtube.com slash natterdabit, N-A-D-E-R-D-A-B-I-T. Um, and then you have a, you had a, an article on Web3. Um, 
And I'll yeah, put that I wrote in the show notes. For, yeah, put it in the show notes for free code camp. It's called What is Web3? And it's really kind of a condensed version of a lot of the stuff we talked about, maybe going into a little bit more depth around native payments and uh, how people mm. might build companies in the way that we've talked about here. Awesome. All right. Well, I will get all that stuff into the show notes. Thanks again, Matter. Thanks for having me. It was good to talk. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Natter Dabbit for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, CBT Nuggets and Fauna. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 106. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.